Some years ago, I heard the story of a traveler in New Mexico who came across a Native American who was lying on the ground, his head sideways, ear to the ground. And he began to say, wagon, two horses, two passengers, one driver. And the man was absolutely flabbergasted. He said to the Native American, he said, you mean to tell me that you can tell all of this by listening to the ground? And the man said, no, it ran over me two minutes ago. (laughs) Part of the problem, the Christian church, the church of Jesus Christ is so anemic today is because the believers have been run over by Satan for so many years and they don't know how to get up and fight him back. They do not know how to get up and take authority over him and experience a victorious life. In fact, when I think of what is happening in our society today, in our nation, our country, I cannot help but think of about this camel driver who was taking a group of people in a caravan across the desert and the trip was for several days. And one morning he got up and he told his companions, he said, we had intruders here last night. And they couldn't understand what he was talking about. They looked around, they said, we didn't hear anything, we didn't see anything. How, what are you talking about? And the camel driver pointed them to the tracks in the sands that the intruder left behind. If anyone does not believe in a personal devil, let them open their eyes and see the tracks in the sands of our culture and our society today. Let them see the tracks in the hospitals and in the mental asylums. Let them see Satan's tracks in the broken homes and the devastated families. Let them see Satan's tracks in America's ghettos that infested with drug and drug dealers and gang-dominated culture. Let them open their eyes and see the tracks in the sand, in the dungeons of politics, with all of its intrigue, with all of its deception, and with all of its selfish ambitions. Let them open their eyes. Let them open their eyes to see the tracks of Satan in the talk shows on television, and the slime and the sordidness of life. Let them open their eyes and see the tracts in the sands of our culture through the Planned Parenthood organization who are determined to destroy life as a first option. Let them open their eyes to see the intruders who's leaving his tracks across our land. But I want to hasten to say, don't ever forget that those who are in Christ Jesus, that those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are born of the Spirit of God, Satan to us, that intruder is a defeated foe. Don't ever forget that we, the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, have been given authority over Satan and all of his demons. He cannot touch us because God is restraining him. But it does not mean that Satan and his fallen angels, his demons, are never going to attack the children of God. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, the opposite is true. If Satan is not attacking you, there's something wrong with your Christian walk. You're not stirring him up. You're not making him mad enough. You're not raffling his feathers. When I get up in the morning, if I don't have a head-on collision with Satan, I'll be worried for the rest of the day, lest he and I are traveling in the same direction. And I don't like that. We have learned about his chain of command. We have learned about his deceptive character. We have discovered his intention toward the believers. 
We have found out what really makes him thrive. We saw the three gates through which he lets himself into our lives. We have learned how to win and defeat him. Today, I want to bring the series of sermons to conclusion by comprehending your enemy's future. I want you to know what God has prepared for him from the beginning before the creation of man. The Bible teaches us that immediately before the return of Christ, There's going to be a tidal wave of rebellion. There's going to be a tidal wave of sin across the world. It's going to sweep the world. Why? Because the devil and his fallen angels know that their days are numbered. From the last message you remember, we saw how Satan and his demons recognized that they are under judgment. And they yelled out and called out to Jesus, Have you come to destroy us at this time? And in John chapter 12, the gospel of John chapter 12, the Lord Jesus Christ announces to his disciples the certainty of his victory over the demons. In verse 25, Jesus prophetically reveals to the disciples how he is victorious, how he has power over Satan, how Satan is defeated. And he tells them about his death and he likens it to a grain of wheat that goes into the ground and is buried into the ground. And then in due course what rises into a great harvest. And Jesus was telling them that the resurrection time when he is lifted up, when he had risen, he will draw all men unto himself. And at verse 31 of John 12, here's what Jesus said. He said, now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And in the epistle of Jude, it tells us that the angels who have joined Satan in his rebellion, and it's about a third of the created angels, they have been kept by God in eternal chains under darkness until the judgment of that great day. What happened after the resurrection? Jesus basically announced sentence against Satan. That he is defeated foe and he's heading for the lake of fire. After the resurrection, Jesus made that sentence public against Satan. After the resurrection, Satan was condemned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And now, listen carefully, it's a matter of time. When Jesus comes back, he's going to execute that sentence. He's going to execute the judgment. It's only a matter of waiting for God's timing to carry out that sentence. When Jesus comes back, he's going to execute the judgment against Satan and all of his demons that one of them is going to escape. In fact, the vast majority of miracles, if you look at the miracles of Jesus and you look at them carefully, I would say just about every one of them was performed to demonstrate the power of the Son of God over Satan and all of his demonic forces. Jesus' miracles were merely a foretaste of that complete power that he has over Satan when he threw him out in the lake of fire in his second coming. In his first coming, Jesus bound the demonic powers in the life of some, opening the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf, the tongue of the dumb. In the second coming, he's going to release all of his children from their physical infirmities. 
In his first coming, Jesus raised some from the dead who died again. On his second coming, he's going to raise all of his children to live forevermore, never to die again. In his first coming, Jesus cast out demons out of some. But in his second coming, he's going to free all of his children from satanic attack, from satanic oppression, and from satanic depression. And do you know how he's going to do it? He will do it by throwing Satan and the demons into the lake of fire. I am not foolish enough to believe that anybody is excited to hear about the judgment of God and hell. It is not a very popular subject. I know that. I am told that talking about hell is not a good marketing strategy for a church. (laughs) Talking about hell will not make friends and influence people. But I've got to tell you, as much as I love you with my heart, as your pastor, I am not here to make friends on the basis of denying the truth of the Scripture. But you know what? Satan is delighted to hear all this stuff of not talking about hell. And yet, somehow, here we are. Secular universities, like Rutger and many others, are offering courses on hell. And all the press reports that I hear is that the students are lining up to take the course. (laughs) There is a waiting list. I had to reflect upon this. And I'm going to put my sociological hat for a moment as a sociologist. That's for two seconds. I won't do that for very long. But everything I read, sociologists tell us that there is such a thing called a Generation X. Now, Generation X is anybody who was born between 1962 and 1982. I'm not saying necessarily I'm in agreement, but I'm telling you this is how they're defining it. And everything that I read tells me that Generation X is rejecting the compromise of the baby boomers. Praise God for that. They're rejecting the hypocrisy of the baby boomers of my generation. And I praise God for that. They are saying, tell me the truth and tell it to me bluntly. Tell it to me plainly. Don't give me all the junk. And I thank God for that. Maybe that is the generation that will bring revival that we so desperately need. In fact, Generation X, the more I read about it, it reminds me of days gone by before your time and before my time. Is what I read in the books. I am told that generations past. Preachers were not afraid to preach on hell and preach on heaven. They were not afraid to offend anybody because they wanted to preach the truth. A story told about a man by the name of Cartwright. He was a circuit rider preacher. And one day he went to preach in a church. And they said to him, he said, Mr. Cartwright, whatever you do, be very careful of what you say. President Andrew Jackson is going to be in the church today. He said, fine. He got up and started preaching. And then he said... "Uh, I am told that President Andrew Jackson is in the congregation. Well, let me tell you before I preach that President Andrew Jackson is going to hell if he does not believe in Jesus Christ. (laughs) People were aghast. They were horrified. They were offended. They were snubbing the preacher. But not Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson walked to him, shook his hand. He said, Sir, I want to tell you this morning... That if I have a hundred men like you in my regiment, I can take on the world. Satan does not want to hear preachers talking about the lake of fire that is prepared for him and his angels. 
Satan does not want to hear preachers telling people to get out of his camp and to Jesus' camp. Satan does not want to hear preachers telling people that unless they repent and believe in Jesus Christ, they're going to end up spending their eternity in hell with Satan and all of his demons. Satan doesn't want to hear preachers who warn people to escape from the eternal judgment that is coming upon the world. Now, just in case you think that I'm trying to scare you into heaven, I am. (laughs) I have no hesitation of doing it. I do whatever it takes to see that somebody is saved and enter into eternal life. Because Satan is delighted now in this modern day soft peddling about the truth of the lake of fire. He is delighted. He is delighted when we trivialize hell and we take it lightly and and we talk about it in, in common language and we don't really understand what it is and I hope after today you will. And I was thinking about this, of how hell is being trivialized and I remember a story I heard many years ago about a group of American tourists who were in Italy. And they went to visit Mount Vesuvius. And there, it was a very active volcano. And uh, it was spewing out massive lava and steam. And, and as these American tourists looked and saw what was happening, one woman was so awed by what she saw. And she yelled out, she said, This is just like hell! And the Italian villager who was standing by looked at his companion and he said, he said, my goodness, these American tourists, they've been everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus taught more about the reality of hell and the horrors of hell and the tragedy of hell In Matthew 25, verse 41, Jesus said that the unbelievers will end up in the lake of fire, which is prepared for Satan and his angels. Listen to me, I'm going to come back to this. Hell was not prepared for humanity. Hell was not prepared for humanity. It was prepared for Satan and his fallen angels. And it was there and prepared before Adam was even created. And in Revelation 20, verse 10, John the Revelator, through the eyes of faith, was able to see the future as present reality. And he saw how God is sending the devil and all his fallen angels into that lake of fire. Jesus taught, listen carefully, that hell is a literal place. It is a literal place. It is not in your mind. It's not an imagination. It is not a state of mind. No, it is a literal physical place. You cannot read the text without understanding that. And Jesus spoke about the intensity and the suffering of those who are going to be there. Jesus emphasized the fact that from it, there is no return. There is no other way. Jesus warned that it is an eternal separation from the loved ones. It is an eternal separation from all that is good and holy. It is an eternal separation from God himself. Jesus, more than any other in the New Testament... Revealed the destiny of Satan and he warned men and women not to follow him in that destiny. Of course there are some who take the word fire literally meaning burning with combustible material. And they said uh, that hell could not be for eternity. It will burn just for a while and then will die down. Why? Because their logic said 
that because it is inconceivable for the fire to keep on burning for eternity, they say that there is not enough combustible material in the universe to keep a fire burning for eternity. Some of them, as a matter of fact, have calculated how long it would take for the earth to burn, and then they concluded that it cannot be for eternity. Please listen to what I'm going to tell you very carefully. I'm going to tell you a couple of things that are very important for your study of the Scripture, for your personal study, and for your growth. The Bible always uses figure of speech in order to illustrate a principle. Always. And there are two things you need to know about this. And it's not only about heaven and hell, but you need to remember it as you read the Scripture. Number one, symbols in the Bible are not meant to blur an issue. They are not meant to undermine an issue. They are not meant to ignore an issue, but to make him clear. God is not deceiving us by using word, picture, of fire that is not quenched in order that we may understand eternal truth. This symbolism of fire is God's given truth in order that He may impress upon our finite mind that we may understand the agony of hell, the pain of hell. He uses that in order that we may get it in our finite mind. Here's the second thing that you must remember. In any common communication, the thing that is being symbolized is always greater than the symbol. I'm going to repeat that. The thing that is being symbolized is always greater than the symbol. Let me give you an example. We have on this communion table some wafers, some bread, and some wine. And we say they represent the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not the body of the Lord Jesus Christ because the body of the Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven. He's already there on the right-hand side of the Father. These symbols are not greater than what they symbolize. God is accommodating to our finite minds. God is accommodating to our inability to comprehend all things at this time. God is accommodating to our ignorance by giving us symbols such as streets of gold, pearly gate. What does it mean? Is God putting commercial value on heaven? No. Not any more than the lake of fire meant to be a burning fire with combustible material. But symbols do not undermine the horror and the terror of hell. It is supposed to intensify it. It's supposed to magnify it. It's supposed to manifest that horror of that place. And the Bible gives us some clues as to the character of hell. Listen carefully. They're five in number. The first thing the Bible said about hell, it's a prison. Matthew 18, 35. But it's not a prison like the physical prison. It's not prison like the earthly prisons. Because earthly prisons imprison the body, but not the soul and not the mind. You see, earthly prisons are palatial mansions in comparison to that eternal prison. Earthly prisons cannot confine the spirit. The spirit is free to worship, free to create, free to imagine, free to anticipate, free to hope. Paul and Silas were beaten up 
and they're thrown into the Philippian jail. And there, they're enchained, but they were singing, and they were praising God, and they were glorifying God. And according to Matthew 10, 28, hell is a prison that will incarcerate the body and the soul together. Creativity is blocked. Hope is dead. Anticipation is no more. Secondly, something else about hell, the Bible said, it's like a pit. Sometimes it's called abyss in some of your translation. And sometimes it's called bottomless pit. What is the scripture trying to tell us here? It's trying to indicate that there is an impossibility to escape it. It is impossible to get away from it. It is impossible to get a second chance. You can't back out once you got in. Here's another characteristic. Hell that is utter darkness. Matthew 22, 13 and 25, 30. The Bible said that Jesus is the light of the world. The Bible said that in the book of Revelation, that in the last day when we're together with Jesus in heaven, we're not going to need the sun to shine because Jesus is going to be the light of heaven. Glory to God. Darkness in hell doesn't just include physical darkness where everything is pitch black physically. But includes moral darkness. It includes mental darkness. It includes spiritual darkness. It is a place that has no dawn, no sunrise, no morning, no ray of sunshine. In hell, every day is night. Every day is pitch black. But then there's a fourth thing that the Bible tells us about that place called hell. He said, the fire will not be quenched. And the worms will not die. Matthew 13, 40. In fact, you know, I counted them. There are 21 times in the Bible, all the New Testament, that refer to hell as a place of fire that does not quench. Which is a clear indication to me, it's a clear indication to all who understand the Word of God, that it is a place of terrible suffering. That is a place of constant agony. There is no relief, not for one second. You remember when Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man? And this rich man who lived for himself, he lived so self-centered. And when he ended up in that place, he called out to Lazarus on the other side. And he said, please, please, Father Abraham, have Lazarus dip his finger in a bowl of water. I need just a drop To give me a relief from this pain. A relief from this agony that I'm in. He lived for himself all his life. And he got into hell and within a few seconds he became a great evangelist. He said, send somebody to tell my brothers. Send somebody back from the dead. Because I don't want them to come to this place. And there's a fifth thing that the Bible talks about in hell. And that is, it is a place of separation. You've heard some people say there'll be lots of good company in hell. In fact, it was George Bernard Shaw who once commented that all of the interesting people will be in hell. But you know what? I want to give you just a very short list of those interesting people. And it's in Revelation 21 verse 8. Short list. They're the cowardly, the vile, the murderers, the sexually perverted, the sorcerers, the idolaters, the liars. Good company, huh? 
But they're not only those people going to be there. There's something very important that you must understand. That in hell, there will be no fellowship or companionship. It is absolute isolation of each individual. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis who said, there are no personal relationships in hell. There will be no comfort of fellowship. There will be no joy of companionship. There will be no feeling of love. This is a place of an imperishable darkness. It is a place of uninterrupted pain. It's a place of unquenchable fire. Hell is the ultimate and continuous horror. And you can tell that I'm not getting any joy of talking about it. Except that I would do whatever it takes to make sure that no one will end up there. I want to know that in my lifetime, I have done all that I can. That no one on the other side says, you didn't warn me. He didn't tell me. Jesus warned again and again. Again and again he warned us. He said anyone who reject him will join Satan and his demons in that place. That place is prepared specifically for Satan and his demons for the rebellion against God. Please hear me right. This earth was created by God. For the inhabitants of humanity. The beautiful sunshine. The mountains. The green grass. The flowers. All the beauty of the earth. The magnificent things. That we see and praise God for. In this planet we call earth. God created it for humanity. This is the place where he wants humanity to dwell. But the lake of fire. He created before Adam even was created. He created for the habitation of Satan. It is for him and for his fallen angels who followed him. Because they beheld God face to face and they rebelled against him. And when Adam rebelled against God, when Adam decided to disobey God, his destiny changed. He no longer had the right to be in the presence of God. He joined Satan and Satan's destiny. But God in his infinite mercy, God in his amazing grace, God in his goodness, he provided a sacrifice for Adam's sons and daughters. God through Jesus Christ provided a sacrifice for Adam's children. Through Christ God provided us a new home, the father's home. Through Jesus Christ, God provided us with a new destiny, the Father's presence. Through Jesus Christ, God provided us with a new identity, the Father's children. The lake of fire was not prepared for human beings. It only became their destiny. And it only becomes their destiny when they refuse God's plan of salvation, pure and simple. When they reject the Son of God, when they follow anyone or any way other than God's Messiah, when angels rebelled, they had no plan for salvation. God did not provide for them. But God's grace provided salvation for humanity, for you 
and you and you and me. What a great God we have. What a great God we have. But you see, it is yours if you accept it gratefully. If you obey him fully, then your destiny will change from hell to heaven. That's the destiny that God wants you to have. But the decision is yours. Will you make it today? Will you make it today? If you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ, say, Lord God, I just never understood this. Today, this day, I will turn my life over to you. You will be the Lord of my life. You are my Savior. I know I can't save myself. And that's why the Bible said that God highly exalted Jesus and that he gave him a name and at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, in heaven, no one will rebel All will bow at the feet of Jesus in obedience and adoration. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our laxities. Father, forgive us for our slothfulness. Father, forgive us when we know the truth and never shared it. Father, forgive us when we know the way and never showed it to anyone. Father, forgive us when we keep all the blessings to ourselves, Father, forgive us when we take your salvation for granted. And I pray this very day that it be a turning point in the lives of your children, of every one of us, Lord, that we may be burdened to pray for the lost, that we may be burdened to pray for those family members who don't know you, those colleagues at work, those lost people, We're going to be lost for eternity. But Father, I claim the promises of God. I claim the covenant of God for each family member of believing parents and believing children. That Father, because I know it's in your economy and your word teaches that you will bring the rest in due course. And I stand on that promise, Father. And I claim those lost members of each saved family today. And I pray that you'll burden us to pray for them, that you'll burden us to intercede on their behalf, and that we see it by faith that they will be in heaven too. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.